Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Muslim Centric Podcast where we hope to educate, inspire and entertain on issues relevant to Muslim life. I am your host Aman. In this episode of Cradle to the Grave we discuss the topic of death and how to prepare for it and how to manage when we are in this situation. We cover a number of topics including why Sheikh Amr Jamil initially started his popular courses on preparing for death, what to do when a loved one is in the last stages of their life, should people visit in hospital at the end of one's life, and what about the process once somebody actually dies, for example, getting the death certificate and arranging the funeral. So a lot of the practicalities are covered in this episode. We speak about the very stressful and busy morning of the actual janazah and burial. We discuss topics as to whether post-mortems are permissible, organ donation, and should the burial be done abroad. In terms of the graveside, we discuss about having a headstone at the grave and placing flowers at the graveside. And what about is there such a thing as a good or bad death and what sort of deaths would be considered as martyrdom? We cover the ghusl of the deceased and also reciting Quran and dhikr once a person has died and the practice of showing the face of the deceased. We then cover the soul's journey after death including the questioning in the grave and the barzakh, the interspace. And eventually how should the family and friends deal with their loss and where the reading of the Quran is permissible on behalf of the deceased and how to offer condolences. We hope you find this episode beneficial and the series was originally broadcast on Radio Ramadan Glasgow in Ramadan 2017 and you can find out more on their website www.rr365.co.uk and I'm recording this introduction in January 2022. If you haven't listened to our other episodes on Cradle to the Grave series, we discuss many aspects such as marriage, parenting, childhood abuse and old age. This episode is hosted by myself, Dr. Aman and my colleague Umran and our resident scholar is Scottish-born Sheikh Amr Jamil of the iSyllabus programme and Unity Family Services and I provide further details of his organisations in the episode notes. Remember you can support the podcast by liking, sharing, reviewing and letting other people know about the podcast. And please do keep in touch with us on social media. I hope you benefit from this episode and look forward to speaking to you again next time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Radio Ramadan 87.7 FM. You're listening to the show Cradle to the Grave. And um, we've joined today with Sheikh Amr Jamil. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. As you know, we've been ta- taking our listeners through various different topics over the last few weekends. And today, I guess, literally is the end stage of that cradle to the grave. We're talking about death and bereavement today. As many of you will be aware, Sheikh Amr has been spending a lot of time teaching and educating around this whole area. There's courses that he's been running. Um, so Sheikh, can you just tell us a bit about the courses that you've been doing? What sort of got you to start organising that and educating and how frequently do you run these courses and when, when's the next one? Alhamdulillah, <laughs> Um, so the idea for the course, I ran, I ran a one-day um, death, bereavement, burial rights course, and I've, read, I've ran it three times now, the, well, four times. The reason I ran it was back in 2006, my father passed away, um, and he was in intensive care, and there was obviously a lot of things that were happening at the time. But um, it was it was, it was at the, the Ta'aziyah or the Afsos that... My um, brother was, there was a conversation going on and one of the persons was saying, well, asking different questions and I was answering them. And my brother made a comment. He said, well, we're lucky that Amr was there because we could just ask him. 
and the, and the, and the person responded, but not everyone's got a scholar in their family. So what do they do? So I said, okay, well, fair enough. Uh, that's a good point. Why don't we do a workshop or something? So I just uh, I used there's a little booklet called what, um, what a Muslim does when he dies by Fisabidla uh, Productions. It's just little booklets they used to produce. Actually, very quick, quite good booklets. Very simple, basic thing. And um, I ran a workshop at Glasgow Central Mosque in the old uh, community centre, and we just put a, a you know kind of um, announcement out, and um, about 60, 60, 60 guys turned up, which I thought was quite interesting. That amount of people. Uh, so it's just a couple hours went through what happens, what are you supposed to do, how do you um, wash a person, how do you shroud a person, and what's the questions that you need to know about around the, the burial and so on. So uh, from there, uh, I'd be meaning to, to do it for, for a while. Um, so what I did the next time I did it, I actually put together my own course from beginning to end. What I did was I got Rizzy involved. Rizzy, as you know, is involved in a lot of burials. So I brought him in to do a session on the uh, practicalities, uh, so the death certificate, all the kind of legalities, and just basically benefiting from his experience and allowing others to benefit from his experience. And uh, so that's three times we've now ran it. So what we do is we just... The idea of the course is to take you right from the beginning right to the end so start with a person is ill a person might be dying what do we do and all the way until the condolences and miscellaneous issues so it takes a whole day and we have a practical demonstration where we go through uh, this is what you're supposed to do and then what we do is we get the students involved and we get them to do we get them to do or act it out and then I just observe them and correct them where they're going wrong, where they're right. And my wife comes in and she helps the, the sisters. So alhamdulillah, everyone that's attended it has said it's benefited them. The issue, the reason why it's so important is because when death happens, a lot of the times you don't have time because you're busy with other things. And um, at that time, a lot of people will tell you a lot of things. So some, someone's doing, you should do this. Another person's saying, no, you shouldn't do that. Another person, and there's a lot of uh, cultural stuff which has been mixed up. So people get really, really confused. And obviously you want to do the best thing for your loved one. But when you've got three, four um, voices, you're not sure who to listen to. It just adds to the trauma and the, the difficulty of the whole situation. So if you had the knowledge, the idea is if you have the knowledge... Um, you can you know what you should do. It just prepares you for that day. And people have actually said to me that they've used my notes. They've had a death and they've actually gone back to their notes and used their notes. So that that gives me a lot of um, joy when when they tell me that. And it's one of those sort of issues you you want to do it beforehand, isn't it? Because death can obviously come very suddenly, and it's not at that point. So oh, now let me go on a course. It's actually it's too late then. Ahead, yeah, yeah. yeah, but that time it's too late. You you need to know. You need to be prepared in advance. And the thing is, look, everyone's going to die. I'm going to die, you're going to die. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful quote from Sayyidina Umar. And Sayyidina Umar said, um, every day we are told Fulan has passed away. And he said, the day will come when it will be said that Umar has passed away. And I always remember that quote every time I get a text from people like Razi, Inna lillahi wa inna ilaihi rajiun, such and such has passed away, Janazah's ex, you know, certain place and the, the Bedou's certain place. I always think of that quote from Sayyidina Umar that one day, you know, it could be that he's passing my message about that you know Amr Jamil's passed away so it's um it's about being prepared um and anyone who's gone through this process of having somebody passed away will appreciate um the difficulty that happens and the, the kind of things that people say 
and there's a lot of confusion so so people need to really get informed and when is your next course likely to be um i haven't put a date down but uh usually it won't be within a year so either a year or or in two years time Cause last one was just a few months ago, wasn't it? Last one was back in um, March, March. March, yeah. March. Yeah. Okay. So let's then shall I make a start. Sheikh, obviously yesterday we talked a lot, a lot about, I guess, end of life care, palliative care, um, and we touched upon, you know, hospices and getting ready for death. Um, so let, let's start off from that process. So suppose we have a family member or a relative who is taken unwell and gone into hospital, for example. Um, and is still alive. So what what should happen then in terms of what should the family, what should people be doing if somebody is severely unwell um, and maybe the doctors have said, look, they're in their last stages of life. What, what uh, is the responses that should people should be doing at that point? So generally, if a person is uh, a sick person or they're ill, um, there's a dua of the Prophet Sallallahu that um, we're supposed to read seven times in their presence, As-Sallallahu Al-Azim, Azim and Yashfiq that um, you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant them um, healing from their sickness. So the actual translation is I ask Allah the Almighty, the Lord of the Mighty Throne, to heal you. And the hadith uh, says that if a person if Allah's not willed for that person to die, then that person inshallah will find cure. So there's many du'as like that. The the ma'awudat, the, the last surahs, the Prophet used to re- read them over himself towards his final illness. Uh, many other du'as like labats, tahurun insha'Allah, no problem if Allah wills because of cleansing of, of sins. So there's a number of du'as that a person can read. If it gets to the point where death is actually approaching and we're kind of, we think that it's imminent, then it is sunnah. To, if possible, to face the person towards the qibla, and if it's not possible to face the qibla, then we look in a bed. You can sit the person up so that the face is facing the qibla, and uh, if they happen to pass away in that moment, then you close their eyes. You say Bismillah wa ala millati Rasulillah, um, and then you. Uh, and now this is not mentioned specifically in the books, but. Because of the way we bury, the body stiffens um, and all that time it goes into a freezer. So in the grave, you're actually supposed to face the Qibla. Because we have to bury people in a coffin, that means they're lying on their back. They're not lying on their side the way we would do it in another in a Muslim country. So it's recommended when the person passes away to turn their face or tilt their face towards the Qibla as much as possible so that when the body stiffens it will be facing towards the Qibla. Sorry if this is quite a basic question, but when you're saying uh, if they're in the suppose they're in hospital and they're in a bed, we say face them towards Qibla, do you mean put the back up and so that they're facing Qibla or maybe to make them turn on their side or turn their head to the side so they're facing Qibla? So basically that they're um uh their the right hand side is towards the Qibla. So the Qibla's on the right hand side. So in like the way you'd sleep in it. Okay. So so they're in the bed. They could be lying down, but the qibla's on the right hand side, and they can and so that when you when they pass away, you can turn their face towards the qibla. If that's not possible, then like you said, you just like you put the the the, the seat up a bed. Back seat of up. the bed. Yeah, oh. and so that their face is actually facing the qibla. That's if you can move it. If you as much as the, what you can do. Yeah, in the yeah. If, if things are if, yeah, if there's things you know tubes and things like that, and you can't do it, obviously you just leave it then. Yeah, and. Um, 
often you you know I've heard you know people say you should read Surah Yasin and stuff at the bedside or keep repeating the Shahada and stuff. Is that is that based on sort of? Uh, yes. So in terms of Yasin, there's a hadith that says Iqra'u Yasin ala mautakum, recite Yasin on your your dead. So that's in, that can be interpreted two ways. Either it means somebody who's literally dead, or it means somebody who's almost dead, like metaphorically dead. So that's why it's recommended to read Surah Yasin at the time of death. Um, also, uh, the hadith says, "Laqinu amwatakum la ilaha illallah." They encourage your dead to say "La ilaha illallah" because there's a hadith that says, "Man kana akhiru kalamihi la ilaha illallah dakhil jannah." That whoever's last words were "La ilaha illallah," they would enter paradise. So we want everyone to leave this world. May Allah Subhanahu wa Taala give us all that. And when we leave this world, we have the tawfiq the ability to say la ilaha illallah um, so that we get that that um, that fadila or that virtue um, and then I said like I said uh, you know if if the, the the person passed away then you you read the dua and you close your eyes and again I guess we're thinking particularly in a hospital setting or in a hospice or something what's your advice about the aspect of often when you hear somebody's unwell Certainly working in hospitals as well in the past has been very much, you, you might get a lot of visitors and a lot of people turning up. Now, what's your advice in terms of, is that a good thing? Like a lot of family and friends might start turning up at the hospital. Or do you think that's all quite stressful and people should give the immediate family a bit of space? So I know I know there's not one answer that fits all, but what, what would your general advice be for people that are in that situation? I think as a general thing, we should always ask the family what their wishes are right. rather than imposing ourselves. You may... Um, you know, think you may be well wishing, but you may be putting a burden on other people. So I think it's always it's always a, a good idea to speak to the family and just say, is it okay to visit? Mm-hmm. When is it okay to visit? How many people can we bring? Uh, I was listening to the, you know your Desert Island interview with Auntie Salman. She was saying when she was ill, she didn't want people, yeah. you know, everyone turning up, and she said, look, you know, do it. And so you, you've got to respect the family. Um, I know certainly with myself, I would only want my immediate family. Or I wouldn't want, and the problem is that you see the problem is that um, everybody thinks they were close to the the deceased, and everyone claims that. Um, but the thing is, you, so for example, when it comes to washing the the deceased, there was all sorts of people turning up to want to wash my dad, claiming all oh, you, you know I was really close. But the thing is, you you can't have twenty people. <laughs> you, you'd get all your eyes with you, thousands of people turning up at the hospital. As a, you know, he was, I was in his advanced course, or his diploma. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, you've got to give uh, the the immediate family the respect they're due. It's their right. If they want somebody, I'm sure they'll call for them. And also, you don't want to get in the way of the hospital functioning as well, because other patients and other people in the ward, and you know, if you start clogging up the yeah. corridors and stuff, it's well, you know, generally the Asian community, we we tend to. It's all or, all, or, all, or all or nothing, isn't it? So when we got, come to the airport, you see other people getting one person collecting them. We have like 30 people. <laughs> Same thing happens at the hospitals. And I, and I guess that ultimately that's a sense of people caring and showing that they're concerned. But it's maybe taking you know 30 seconds to think about actually what is best for the family and the well, individual. Even Islamically, when it talks about condolences, ta'ziyah, they say that it's better to do it after burial. And the reason they say it's better to do it after burial is because before burial, the immediate family is busy with getting things prepared for the the ghusl and so, so there. So even Islamically, the uh, the recommendation is 
wait until the burial's over and then go and do your condolences? So once um, somebody has passed away, what should happen next, I guess, in terms of what happens to the body and uh, storage and, and the processes, I guess, in the next uh, few hours, in the next day or so? Yeah, so what would happen is uh, obviously they'll be declared dead. Uh, here you'd probably call or get in contact with the mosque, Central Mosque, Glasgow or wherever it is. Uh, I know in um, Edinburgh there's a, there's a Muslim professional undertaker, so that's in Edinburgh. Obviously in Glasgow you'd probably contact Central Glasgow, Central Mosque and say this is what's happened. They usually come round with somebody to collect the body. The nurses and stuff will prepare the body. The body will get taken to the, the mosque. If there's no complications, it's quite straightforward. It gets put in the freezer overnight. The next day in the morning, you'll wash the body, shroud it and get ready for janazah. Um, if there's complications, uh, obviously, then it will be delayed. Um, you will need to get a death certificate issued. So you go to Martha Street or wherever you have your registries and go and get a death certificate. So <clears throat> a couple of things. I mean, it's, quite, it's a busy morning um, arranging who's going to do the ghusl and so on. The mosque generally has uh, most of what you need, but um, you can come early, have a look. If there's anything you're not happy with, uh, extra towels, whatever you want to, to bring, uh, bring that yourself. So the body will then be would be washed, shrouded. Uh, then a lot of a lot most times people will, will want to see the body, they see the face. So people come, see the face, and then the the funeral prayers prayed after the Lord usually. So let's perhaps discuss some of these aspects in detail. So firstly, especially if it's a sudden and unexpected death, the whole issue of post mortem might be raised, where the pathologist will look for a cause of um, death if it's if it's not expected. Um, what is the views and permissibility about uh, post-mortems? Um, generally, the, if, it's, if it can be avoided, the body is um, usually not to be tampered with. So if, because the, the sunnah is to wash out, um, pray the janazah and bury the body as soon as possible. Uh, there's not supposed to be any delay. So unless there's, it's out of your hands, sometimes it is out of your hands, say it's a murder case or something, they will definitely want to know, or they may they suspect that they will definitely want to know what the cause of death is. Um, but if there's, if there's nothing, there's no real reason for it, it's always best to avoid it because uh, there's obviously incisions in the body. Um, it, the body will be stripped naked normally. So, sure, you know, your father, your mother, you, you really don't want to go down that route unless you really have to. But I guess there's some legal requirements, so as long as there's a legal necessity... If it's a necessity, then, you know... The Sharia allows... Yeah, it. yeah, because, you know, the legal maxim is that necessity uh, makes, the permiss- makes the impermissible permissible. Okay. And I know another step is a whole sort of topic in itself, but briefly, this whole aspect of organ donation, is that something that... Is permissible or there's some leeway in, in, in allowing that and whose decision is that is that the individuals or the families and can one override the other for example yeah so organ donation generally uh, I mean this is a, a new uh, phenomena because it wasn't really prevalent in the past like many contemporary issues scholars very often differ over this and organ donation there is two camps one camp allows it one camp doesn't allow it um 
I don't want to get into like the ins and outs of why, but basically the basic idea is the one it doesn't allow it. It feels that it's not your body. It's as a trust from God. You can't tamper with it, and they'll vote, they'll um, quote various texts to support that. The other side who allow it, they will quote other texts to talk about um, the the benefit when you can bring uh, benefit to other people, and uh, that this is a, a a situation where it's a necessity because you can give life to somebody, and that's always uh, a good thing, isn't it? To to if you're if you're uh, if anything from you can. Uh, give someone else a uh, life uh, normally this is something that a person should uh, have um, made written in their will or have a donor card or something like that. something that really should be discussed and it should be uh, the person's choice in that matter suppose um, the person allows it and then the family after the death say no we're not happy with that now, I guess there'll be a whole legal side of what you mm-hmm. know what the legal side does, but from the Sharia perspective, who has the autonomy to make that decision, and who, the, who whose decision? The, the Sharia, the Sharia does actually look at the rights of the relatives, because it deems that it's not just the person's decision, because that decision impacts on the well-being of their relatives. So if their relatives feel that the the body is going to be um, tampered with, and you know there's going to be incisions made, that may cause them distress. And trauma. So, for example, it could be, say, you've passed away and your parents are really, really unhappy about it and they really feel this is this is inappropriate and they really feel that it's harmful and so on. So the Sharia doesn't overlook their feelings as well. So, so their feelings are taken into consideration. Okay. Another aspect which you've touched on before but it'd be useful just to reiterate is what if the wish is for the person to be buried abroad, for example, or elsewhere? And also, what happens... Um, yeah, now if you answer that first, then I've got a few follow-up sort of questions. Yeah, so in the past, when you wanted to bury the body abroad, they would have to go through um, a certain process where they would um, remove, essentially remove your organs, fill you with uh, an alcoholic fluid, and then you would be ready to go on an airplane and then obviously there's that aspect the disrespect aspect um, there's a delay aspect getting delayed and also I mean Pakistan if it says Pakistan the earth there and the earth here uh, there's no real difference Makkah yes there is, Medina yes there is but no, nowhere really else so from a number of aspects it's very problematic and that's why a lot of ulama of the opinion it's impermissible I have um, read articles in the last year where um, in some uh, cases they, you can get permission not to um, have that done but you can actually just get a scan instead. So that would be a lot less of an issue. There's still an issue of the delay of burial. My personal perspective is people shouldn't do it um, because if you look at Sahaba um, many of them died in distant lands. None of them got their bodies sent back to Medina. If, they, if, they, if anyone's going to do the Sahaba, if you actually look at the Battle of Uhud, the Battle of Uhud, if you've ever been to Medina, it's, it's just outside Medina. You can actually see Medina from it. Um, yet Hamza, the radiallahu anhu, the uncle of the Prophet he's buried there. And that wasn't very far from Medina. So if, if the Sahaba, if they were, and they were, you know, it wasn't very far. If it, it was if it was um, something that Sharia wanted, they would have been buried in Baqiyah. 
So the fact that they were buried there, in Buk- and when I was in Syria, this Sir Hazrat Bilal was buried there, Khalid bin Walid was buried there. If you go to um, Tur- Turkey, Ayyub is buried okay. there. You know, there's, there's, there's uh, Sahaba in Egypt, the Sahaba all over the world. So, and, and the thing is, only uh, out of 100,000 or maybe 120,000, only 10,000 Sahaba were buried in Medina. The rest were all buried outside of Medina. So uh, I'm, I'm personally, I personally feel that you should just get buried wherever you pass away. And what about um, just on that? Is that what if you are somewhere on holiday and pass away? So, for example, I don't, you, you go to Dubai or something, or you, you know, you go to Florida or something. Um, so you're not going there to move. You're not staying there, but you're kind of visiting. And suppose you've not got any real connections. You go to Andalusia or something like that, and you know, God, God, you know. You know, in this difficult situation, somebody passes away. This, in those circumstances, is it understandable to repatriate the body and bury it with the families, or even then, you, the op. I guess it's looking at what's the best option, and then yeah. what's the, what's the acceptable option. I mean, I'm still of the per- perspective that wherever you pass away, Allah wills you to pass away there. You get buried there. Uh, if people feel well, there's nobody there, all my family's here, and so on. There might be some ulama that will, will make me give dispensation for that. However. Um, that really should be in a situation where the body's not going to be tampered with if it's um, if it's going to just be scanned or something like that. But if there's tampering of the body going on, see, end of the day, we've always got to do, and this is this is a key this is a key point, and I always stress this: let's do what is in the best interest of the deceased, not what is in the best interest of the relatives. We have to do what is, what's, what's the best thing for this person that's passed away. This is why when you go to the graveyard, people want to put big massive um, headstones and tramp, plant, plant a tree. And I've seen it put, people put on a bench there. and All of those things, that's not for the dead person. That's for you. That's to make you feel better. But really what you should be focusing on is what is actually going to benefit the deceased not what is going to make me feel better. And while we're on that topic, I was going to maybe come to that later on, but I guess this aspect of graveyards... Um, the, you know, the, I think people that have are, are growing trees and stuff. There's a link to you know a, a hadith or something about you know planting something living, etc. So could you just explain a little bit in terms of um, in the graveyards, etc. I mean, what what are the issues about these big tombstones? What is the issue? Is it just uh, actually not preferable? Or is it actually high, strongly you know not recommended? Well, in terms of headstones, it's permissible to have a headstone. But it should only have necessary information on it. So really, you're talking about a small headstone, not some of the big ones we see. It doesn't make you any better to have a big headstone or a small headstone. It's just basic information of who you are. There's a hadith where the Prophet um, said that a certain Sahabi, uh, Uthman ibn Mad'um, who'd passed away, and he said uh, he'd put a head. Sorry, he'd put a stone at the head, and he said that this will mark the grave so that. Um, his family will know about who he is. So to have a marking there is fine, but to put dearly missed granddad forever, that's completely unnecessary. I mean, there's, there's no benefit to to the deceased. I guess, I guess it's the family who are grieving who feel that, you know, maybe that's how they're showing their affection or concern. Because anyone that does it is doing it for a positive reason, aren't they? But you're saying it ultimately it's going back to the principle of what is going to benefit the deceased. Yeah, and plus it's a bit of necessity. What is necessary? Necessary is the name, basically who is the person, and obviously some indication that the person's Muslim, so that can be identified. But all the other stuff, 
Because the thing is, if you if you don't have a, a minimum, then where does it stop? Mm-hmm. Someone might say, well, for me, it makes me feel better if I had, um, uh, you know, th- three you know, a three-storied headstone with like a big poem, like a cabal or something, yeah. you know, so where would you stop? So it has to be something which is sensible, um, something which is small. In terms of the, in terms of like building on the grave, you shouldn't, I've seen this in, in the graveyards, also some people put pebbles and stuff. You shouldn't put anything on the grave, leave it the way it is. And the grass is growing on, the grass is beneficial for it. Because the grass is living now. The the hadith you're referring to is when the Prophet ﷺ was passing by a grave, and he said, "Yu'adzaban wa ma yu'adzaban fi kabir." That they're being punished, and they're not being punished in something which is big. As for one of them, used to spread false tales, and the other one used to not uh, take precautions when he used to urinate. Now, what the the scholar says that these are big sins. So when the Prophet said they're not big, what he meant was people do them thinking that they're not big. But the repercussions of all of them are big. And so he could obviously perceive that they were being punished. So he took a, a, a living stalk or like a branch and he broke it in half and he put it on each grave. And he said, perhaps their um, punishment will be lowered as long as these two do not wilt. Now, an explanation of that, the scholars have said, well, um, the fact that the Prophet said until they wilt, Indicates it's the uh, the fact that the the branch is alive that's benefiting the deceased, and we know that everything creation does tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa taala glorifies Allah subhanahu wa taala. So they concluded that it was the barakah of the tasbih that would lower the punishment of the grave. Others took it very restricted it and said it was because of the the blessed hand of the Prophet But the the other opinion, the first one I gave, is more general. Uh, and because of that, they say anything living on top of the grave, like if you put flowers there, if you put uh, like grass there, anything like that, will benefit ultimately the deceased until it dies. However, taking it to trees is, is taking it a bit far. Number of reasons. Number one is that the, the the trees' roots grow deep into the grave, and we know that certain um, bodies do not decompose, like martyrs and. Uh, scholars and a few other people so there's there's that number two is that it not only affects your gravestone it affects everyone's gravestones around about so have you sought permission from everyone else that they want a tree there number three um it attracts birds so they lay nests and then they start pooing all over the 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 headstones and then you see people washing them and so uh another thing is if everyone starts planting a tree it's going to become a forest yeah you know, so um, it's considerate about yeah, and plus this is a public, it's a public graveyard. It's 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 the the wakf, the endowment is for the whole community. It's not your private ground. If it was your private ground, you're burying in. You want to bury, you want to plant a tree, do it. You want to put a bench, that's fine. But this is public land. It's just like a mosque. You can't just come and claim a little bit. Right? It, it, you you can only do what you're given permission for, and, and the permission is. As a general blanket, you want to be buried there, it's fine. But doing going over that, this is not public land. This is this is this is uh, so it's not private land. It's public land, and you need everyone's permission to do something like that. And so, so this aspect of the <coughs> tombs and 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 the graves. Um, what about when you go certainly abroad in the Middle Eastern countries or back home? Um, people that are maybe, you know. Um, Significant, you know, rulers, or you know, they get sort of 
tombs made for them or mausoleum sort of thing. You go to Pakistan, Jinnah's thing, or, you know, you go to Lahore and you've got these sort of um, cabals thing, you know. So I guess part of that is is part of the nation's history, but also, I guess, for people that are visiting and managing that whole people that will want to visit the graves. And, but they're obviously quite they're often quite big. They're solid structures and stuff. So is there some leeway around in certain circumstances things like that might be permissible uh, generally speaking if you look at the the tradition it's against building on 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 that your grave um i remember i i visited imam nawawi's grave in nawa which is in the south of of syria um and there's a huge tree growing outside out of his grave and the story was there that that he'd uh, he was against um, tombs and people tried to build them and it kept collapsing I mean, they left it, this massive tree just sprouted out of his grave. So the general indications in hadith is against it. Some later scholars uh, did allow only for significant people like Sahaba, uh, very well-known personalities, and they allowed like a structure, not actually on the on the grave, but around the grave. So it's like, an, it's like, a, like the, the Prophet's grave. Uh, it's got a it's got a roof over it, isn't it? That kind of idea that it has a roof over it, but that your grave is untouched. Um, so that uh, generally was practiced. That's why in Egypt, Syria, all these places, you will find um, uh, even in to be honest, even in Jannat um, al which is before the last kind of two hundred, three hundred years before um, Muhammad Ibn Abd Wahab's time. If you went there, you could actually, there were, there were like uh, domes over significant people like from the Prophet's family so that people knew where they were. So that existed. Obviously, Abdul Wahab was against it. He destroyed that. So that's quite a modern thing or more recent. It's, last, very, it's, it's very, very recent. When you go, it's just totally plain. There's just stones. Yeah, that, that's only happened in the last couple of hundred years. Um, and there were, I mean, there's some, 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 some people were even saying they wanted to um, destroy the dome above the Prophet's mosque. Uh, because they're quite strict about these things, but obviously there'd be an outcry if they tried that. But um, this this actually did exist. So this the stuff you see in Egypt and other countries actually wasn't just restricted there; it was everywhere. But I think in Pakistan, I mean, I went there recently. Uh, the problem is that um, people sometimes um, go beyond their bounds, and um, everyone is now building a, a tomb over their sheikh because they believe the sheikh is the sheikh of the time. So everywhere you go, there's people building. And the thing is, obviously, people have more money now. So they're building bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's getting a bit ridiculous, to be honest. Sahaba, you can understand. Very big personalities, like somebody like Imam Shafi, you can understand. But, you know, it's um, everyone's, uh, you know, everyone next door neighbor can't be, can't be, you know, the, 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 the scholar of the century. What about this aspect? And something, I guess, linking to something that's tragic happened recently. You know, you've heard about the... The Greenfall Tower fire in London and Mela have mercy on all of their souls that have perished there. And it's obviously a very traumatic event. Mm. Um, and we're not getting into the whole politics of that, but um, th- I'm just interested in the whole status of certain people in terms of the method of death and the timing of death. So is there something from the traditions that comment on, so for example, if it's in Ramadan or on a Friday, these sort of elements do people, I think, because you often hear this because I think it helps reassure the family and others, or maybe they had a good death or maybe it was a timing was significant. And I guess, you know, at one level it's just offering and sympathising with that emotional connection that people are trying to console themselves. But is there aspects in the Sharia in terms of A, the method of death, whether that is a good sign or a bad sign, and also the timing of death? 
Yeah, so um, the the Prophet taught us a dua. He said, "Allahumma inni as'aluka husn al-khatima." Oh Allah, I ask you for a good end. So there is this thing of idea of good end and bad end. Bad end is obviously dying um, in uh, you know the wrong place in a nightclub or something like that, or dying of, 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 of an overdose, something like that. A good end is dying in sajda, dying in Makkah, that kind of idea. So uh, there is that idea. If you die in childbirth or die in a fire right, or yeah, stuff, yeah. I guess because so, thinking about the people. Yeah, so a, lot, a lot, so a lot of people tend to think of a martyr as a martyr, somebody died in a battlefield. However, Imam uh, Suyuti actually has a whole risala, a whole, a whole treatise, and he expands mar- uh, martyrdom through 30 categories. Uh, and uh, one of our sheikhs that I go in Hajj with, Sheikh Zakaria in, in uh, France, he's actually done his PhD on the whole issue of martyrdom. And he's saying it's really, really, really wide. There's like so many categories. But going back to Imam Suyuti's classification, he actually mentions a woman who dies in childbirth, uh, a person who, who dies in an accident. So like what happened in the the tower in London, those people, the Muslims from there, they would be actually considered martyrs, and that's um, like a recompense for the way they died. Do you still, um, <coughs> I guess, is there different levels of martyrdom in terms of would you still do their ghusl etc. In, in these? Yeah, so so the only differentiation, the only differentiation is one's called shahid al dunya, another one's called shahid al akhirah. So Shahid al-Dunya is somebody that died in the battlefield. Their ghusl is not given. Um, you still pray janazah prayer. Whereas the other categories, you do pray their, you do their ghusl and you pray on them. But in terms of being shuhada, being shaheed, they're both the same. So we've talked a bit about the process of what happens once somebody passes away. Uh, I guess looking at aspects such as post-mortem, organ donation, where they should be buried, etc. Um, so Sheikh... Uh, could you just take us from almost from an A to Z? I guess the next stage is about this whole aspect of ghusl. What is it? What should be done? Is it different for male and female? Um, so if you could just talk us through that and and shed some light in terms of the Islamic um, perspective on that. So ghusl, I mean, essentially, it's uh, the way to always remember it is the, it's the same way you would do it if you're having ghusl for yourself. So how would you how would you do ghusl? Um, you do wudu. Um, you, well, first of all, you do istinja, then you do wudu, and then you uh, wash the entire body. So essentially, you're doing the exact same when it comes to a, de- a deceased person. Obviously, they can't wash themselves, so you're doing it for them. So you give them wudu first. There's a, there's a element of istinja. Uh, there's also washing the entire body. But essentially, if you wash the entire body, then that is the bare minimum. Um, you cover their nakedness, their aura, so between the navel and the knee, you would cover that. Um, you, generally, you get males to wash males, females to wash females for obvious reasons. Um, and you need, obviously, a, a number of people because uh, the body has to be moved. It's usually lying flat on its back, so you have to wash the, 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 the back and the backside as well, so you have to move a body. Now, if you've ever dealt with a body, they're quite heavy, so you need a couple of people to move it. The sunnah is to wash it three times. You can do it, wash it uh, more than that. At the end of the washing, you put the shroud on. The shroud is usually white sheets. There's three sheets for a male and uh, two additional sheets for a female. Um, the additional sheets for a female is obviously one for head covering and one extra one around her chest area to give her more concealment. Um, then it's also um, uh, recommended to put uh, perfume 
or itter on the limbs that they used when they used to prostrate in the world. So the forehead, the nose, the hands, um, the knees, the feet. And that's just a way of honouring the, the dead person. Um, and then uh, we obviously dry the body. We we don't we don't cut anything from the body. We don't cut their hair or cut their nails or anything like that. Um, and then we put the, the the shroud onto them, put them into the because we have to bury in coffins here. Normally you wouldn't bury in a coffin if you were. And I always recommend this when you go to uh, Umrah and you there's almost a janaza after every single salah. So when they finish the salah, they'll quickly pick the body up and, and go towards the graveyard. If you can try and join that. Try and join it and just go in and see how they actually bury a dead person. Um, it's, 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 it's insightful. Um, so you'll see that they don't use a coffin, they just use the, the sheets. And the coffin in Arabic is actually the sheets, so it gets confusing with coffin and coffin. Uh, then what they do is they lower the body into the, um, into the graveyard so that the face will be facing the Qibla, just the same way you'd, you'd, you'd sleep. Um, because we're in a coffin, what they tend to do is tilt the body onto the right-hand side, lower it down, um, and then you obviously uh, will... Well, obviously, there would have been this janazah prayer before that, so once you washed it, shrouded it, and then it's a janazah prayer. And what's this perspective? Because often when you do go to this janazah, they, they have this opportunity to see the face of, of the person deceased. Now, um, is that something from... You know, I guess is that something that is highly commended, or is it? Insert, you know, is it because I don't know how much is cultural and how much is what is good practice. So I'm always a bit unclear. I if I, I don't know the person, I always feel uncomfortable with just going to have mm. a look. You know, but is that something that it should be doing? Well, the the precedent for it is when the Prophet Sallam passed away. He he, one of the companions, Uthman ibn Madhoun, he kissed the Prophet kissed his face after death. Um, and also it's narrated that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu kissed the Prophet after his death he came in and covered his face kissed it and he said by Allah you're the most beautiful to me so they use this as a precedent that you can uncover the face and kiss it or look at it um, but obviously the way it's done here is it's a bit more there probably is an element of culture involved in there um, and uh, it's really, that's something, if it bothers you, then put it in your will or explain to your family, look, I don't want half a glass go turning up to see me. But is it something that, suppose there's a janazah and I don't know the person, but I'm at the mosque, um, is it something I would get a reward for going in and having a look at the face? There's or no, there's no, there's no, there's no virtuous about no, that. There's nothing, there's no reward uh, as such. Um, the, que- the, the question is just about it's permissible to do so, but there's no reward. It's not. Part parcel of the rituals, you could say. Rituals are ghusl, shrouding, janazah prayer. Umran, we've had uh, some uh, questions coming in just from what we've been discussing earlier on. So yeah, one of the brothers is asking whether reading the rood over the body prior to it being placed into the grave is something that should be done. Um, the, 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 you're not allowed to read the Qur'an uh, beside the deceased until the, the body's washed. Uh, from the time of death to, until you wash it, but you can make du'a. You can do anything which is not Quran, so durud, uh, istighfar, anything like that can be read next to the body up until it's washed. Once it's washed, you can even read Quran next to it. Uh, so generally just praying for the deceased, whatever form of that praying is, is fine. 
and you make the intention that the the reward of what you're reciting is for the deceased. But there's nothing specific about at that time, uh, that specific time about it. It's a general statement, so it can be throughout that process. The sunnah is when you lower the body to say Bismillah wa ala millati Rasulullah in the name of Allah and in the part of the way of the Prophet Sallallahu And then it's recommended when you when you uh, put the first dirt onto the grave, you take three handfuls and you recite with the first one, minha khalaqnakum, the second one you recite, wafiha nu'idukum, and the third one you recite, wafiha nu'idukum, taratun ukhra. It's actually one verse, but you split it up over the three. That's been narrated. Um, and then when the, the earth is put on to the, the body or the, the coffin, there's also um, recommendation of making istighfar for the deceased. There's a hadith about or narrations about reading the beginning of Surah Baqarah, the, the head and the end of Surah Baqarah, the, the feet. And you'll see this, imams do this. Um, and then uh, they make dua afterwards. So there's a hadith in uh, Abu Dawud which says, استغفر لي أخيكم واسأل الله له تثبيت فإنه الآن يسأل that ask Allah to forgive your brother ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make him steadfast because he's about to be questioned because we know that once you walk away the last people move away from the, 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 the deceased the angels Munkar and Nakir come into the grave sit the body up and the questioning begins so this is um, an opportunity just before that that the Prophet used to make dua and encourage other people to make dua for forgiveness of that person, ask him to be steadfast for that questioning. This question of talqeen, which we talked about before, encouraging the deceased to say, La ilaha illallah, there's also some schools that say you do this after burial as well. So like the Shafi school um, recommends it, the Hanbali school recommends it. The Hanifi school, some recommended it, some didn't, and some stayed silent. So it's a good practice to, to do anyway. Uh, there's also a narration about um, staying there for, for, especially for the close relatives, to stay there for a, a period of time, 15 minutes uh, at least, and just stay there and read uh, for the deceased and make dua for them before they, they, go, they, they leave. Um, you also mentioned the will, if for example you didn't want others to see you, and if you wanted to be buried in a specific mosque and you know the family want to bury you elsewhere, all that kind of stuff, what would you recommend on that? Buried in a mosque. I think it's buried, or rather the, the, the janazah was you, to be. Yeah, you should. You should. Um, uh, if you feel that is anything that could be contentious, you should put that in will, and you should explain to your family that this is in my will, um, so that things are done according to your wishes. So moving on, then. So we've done the ghusl and um, then we're at the graveyard, and, and I guess um, you know the body is buried. Uh, can you take take us through, I guess, I know there's books on this, but I guess the soul's journey um, at that point. And we'd mentioned a little bit yesterday when, you know, you were in that situation where you had to explain to people that are passing away mm. about what happened. So I mean, what is the sort of the events that are subsequent to somebody being buried? Uh, or, or let's go back a bit. As soon as they die... What happens to the soul? What are they aware of? What are they not aware of? And what happens? And if you can just so take us through that. The soul the soul is actually the real you. Okay. So the the real me, the real you. The actual soul is, is the real you. Um, because the this body will disintegrate from many of us. There's certain bodies that don't disintegrate, like the prophet's bodies, the martyr's bodies and so on. However, most people, the bodies disintegrate. So... The soul doesn't disintegrate. The soul is always there. The soul was pre-
present before you came into this body, existed before you came into this body, and it exists once the you comes out of the body. So the real you is the soul. Um, when you're in this life, <clears throat> you're considered a human being when the, the body and the soul are together. Once the soul comes out of the body, you're considered to be gone from this world and, and uh, dead. What happens is the soul comes out of the body, but the soul is always connected to the body. The way of thinking about it is like a, a piece of string. There's a, there's a connection between the soul and the body at all times. So the soul comes out of the body, the angel of death. Just before you pass away, you'll see the angel of death. He will take your soul out. And there's a lot of discussion over if it's a good soul or bad soul. The basic point is that if it's a good soul, it'll be an easy process. Bad soul will be a difficult process, painful process. It then goes and gets registered. Um, and this is, uh, uh, um, to an extent, the the world of the soul is uh, uh, has a lot of grey areas. So there's certain things we know, certain things we don't know. And Allah SWT actually mentions this in the Quran. يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الرُّوحِ They ask you about the soul, the ruh. That say the soul is from the affair of my Lord And you've only been given a small amount of knowledge So there's a lot of grey areas But what we do know is that the soul gets um, registered There's some narrations about the soul meets the other souls Like your, your parents and relatives who are waiting for you Almost like a, uh, a welcome committee in a sense Once all that's done, the soul will be brought back down um, and it kind of almost hovers about the above the body, and it watches the whole process. So basically, the soul will wait um, until the questioning of the grave. Up until the question of the grave, the, the soul is connected to the body, but it's, it's basically hovering. It's not in the body. So, is there something to do with you know we hear a lot about these out of body experiences or ghosts and that whole aspect? I mean, is there something that could be connected in that period? I mean, it's. The thing is, um, the the soul actually comes out of the body when you sleep. That's why sleep is called the lesser uh, death. So the soul can come out of the body, but it's always connected to the body. And this is where people, when they have um, dreams and they see people from who have passed away, the explanation is that it's the soul that's met their souls. So there is that aspect about these out-of-body experiences. I don't know, Allahu Alam, I'm not sure, but... Maybe, like I said, it's a grey area. So maybe there's something there, maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, but basically, the, the the soul is hovering above the body. It watches the ghusl. Um, it watches everything that happens, the janazah prayer. It will go with the body uh, until the graveyard. It will watch the burial. Once everyone goes away, the the soul comes back into the body. When the soul comes back into the body, that's where the angels come and sit the soul and sit the the, the body up. And how that's done, Allahu Alam has done, and the questioning of the grave begins. So the soul is 100% aware of everything that is going on. Yes. And then what happens is in the uh, then then the next life begins, which mm-hmm. is the life of the barzakh, which is the life of the grave. Cause that was one, uh, that's what I was wondering next. Then is that whole element of you know because we hear a lot about you know if she'd been good the grave widens yeah. if you know but this is this happens after the questioning so when the questioning happens if you're successful the 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 grave then widens and uh, basically what happens is a door to paradise is a door to hellfire is shown to you opened and you're shown hellfire and it said to you this would have been your place and it's closed and then a door to paradise is open and some of 
the breeze of paradise comes into the grave. The grave then expands. And the hadith says, That the grave is nothing but a garden from the gardens of paradise. Or a pit from the pits of hell. So then the, the person is not successful. They are shown, that first of all, the door to heaven is, is opened. And they're shown this was what you would have got had you obeyed Allah. And it's closed. And then the door to hell is shown and said, this is where you will be going. And some of the heat of the hellfire comes into the grave. The grave then constricts such that the ribs start to touch each other and the person's in torment. And this situation continues until the day of resurrection, that then people will be called forth. How does that fit in then? Because I guess there's an element of you don't know whether you're going to Jannah or Jahannam till after the day of resurrection. So how do you know in the grave? Is that, I mean, is that... As part, so, as so part, if you know that in yeah. the grave that you know you see Jannah, then you know you're going to Jannah. Well, it's part of the process, isn't it? Uh, it's part of the the whole um, process of knowing if you're successful or knowing you're not successful. Um, but when you're when you're going to paradise, it doesn't mean you're going to go straight away. There might be an element where you will be punished. Um, so um, there is that that element of, there, and it could be the person who's being punished. Maybe the, that punishment will be. Combined with other punishment, maybe that will be sufficient. But that's a general, again, it's a grey area, but it's a general statement. Um, and this is where um, doing sadaqah, doing dua, um, reading for the person, doing all these good actions can help the person in the grave. So if a person is being punished um, and say their children are making dua or do uh, sadaqah for them or read Quran for them, all these actions can put an end to the, the punishment if Allah wills or it can reduce it. So it's not a, it doesn't mean it's an indefinite indefinite state indefinite state for that person. So we should continue to do as much as possible because it will ultimately um, benefit the person. And one very priceless piece of advice for every single person is if they read Surah Tabarak, which is the first surah of the 29th uh, chapter, only two and a half pages, the hadith says whoever reads this and dies that night will be safeguarded from the punishment of the grave. So for five minutes investment, you're guaranteed safety from the, pen of the, the hellfire. So everyone, not a single Muslim, should go to sleep without reading that. Now we've got phones, there's no excuse. You can easily read that before you go to sleep. And you, I, I guarantee you, you do it a couple of months and you have memorised it. And so in the last few minutes, Sheikh, let's focus on the people that are left behind. So obviously this person's journey has started in the afterlife. And let's focus a little bit about how the family and relatives deal with this loss and bereavement. And Umran, you had a question which I think a lot of people often ask. Yeah, so basically this is, um, you know, people go to um, different households and some are encouraged to recite Qur'an and some are told that they shouldn't read Qur'an for mm -hmm. the deceased. Uh, I recently went to a, a funeral where that they, they said we're not going to have any Quran candy because it's just not the thing to do, etc. Can you just shed some light on that? And why, and why didn't they allow that? There was basically it's it's not from the Sunnah. The Prophet never did that. Okay, see this this needs clarification. The Prophet didn't do something. This because the Prophet didn't do something does not mean it's impermissible. So. Um, we have to establish: Do we do we just do we do a DIY job, and um, do I go away and you go away and everyone goes away and just looks at the Quran, looks at Hadith, and makes up rules themselves, or do we ask the people of knowledge, right? 
Allah SWT says in the Quran, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ ذِكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of knowledge if you don't know. So the people of knowledge, if you look at the vast majority of mosques in Glasgow, every single one of them, bar a couple, will announce that um, there's a Quran gathering for such and such has passed away. So either they're all nincompoots, basically, that because if it's that simple, the Prophet never did it. Why are, the, why are all these imams doing this? Why is the community doing it? Or maybe they understand something that we haven't understood. The ulama, basically, not everything is, is, is spelled out explicitly in hadith, which is why we have methodology, usul fiqh, a methodology of how to extrapolate readings from the Quran Sunnah. We have things like consensus. We have things like qiyas, analogy. So many ulama have done have done analogy on other proofs. One of the proofs I gave earlier on was the the the, the stock that the Prophet put in the graves. That he said that the, the ulama concluded it was from the barakah of the tasbih that lowered the punishment. And they did qiyas. They said if if the tasbih of a twig can lower the punishment. What about the Quran recited by a believer? What about other acts which are greater than that? So by analogy, they establish it through analogy. And we do have many um, narrations from the pious predecessors who used to go to the graveyard and recite Quran at the graveyard. Um, so it is established, it's an established practice. And the, the four schools, or, uh, the four schools of, of Sunni law all establish what's called Isa Thawab, doing an action and then sending the reward to the deceased. This opinion that is, is, is only restricted to dua is a minority position, right? Now, I'll give you an example. Someone just sent me a, a text very recently saying that Sheikh Mahar in, in Saudi Arabia has said the last 10 nights, because it could be Laytul Qadr, he's encouraged to do three things, give sadaqah every day. So if it lands in Laytul Qadr, it will be multiplied by 83 years, read two rak'ahs, and because if it lands in Ayatul Qadr, it will be multiplied. And the last one, I think, was read the Surah Ikhlas three times because the hadith that says if you read it through Ikhlas three times, it is equivalent to reciting the, Quran, uh, the whole Quran in terms of reward. So if it lands in the 80th, uh, on Ayatul Qadr, it's times by 84. Now, qu- simple question. Did the Prophet do that? I don't believe he did. Well, so you know, if you're going, to, if you're going, if you're going down that line of, if this is your, if this is your principle in life, the Prophet never did it. Then I will give you so many things that people do that the Prophet never did. Right? Making, du- for example, making du'a on a nikah. Is that established that the Prophet used to do this? The only du'a was Barakallahu uh, laka wa baraka alayka. That's it. But actually doing a du'a, giving a speech, a, a wedding, a, 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 a sermon, apart from the Arabic sermon, none of these things, a lot of these things that we do, the Prophet never did. So if you're going to go down that line, the Prophet never did this. Did he get people together for a khatam al-Quran like we're doing now in these nights? Did the, did the, did, was, a, was a whole khatam of the Quran read in the time of the Prophet in Tarawih prayers? Can you establish that? No one can establish it. So I guess with all these issues, I guess the key message is if you're not sure, then speak to people and see, you know, seek advice from imams and um, learned people to understand what the right position is. Um, Sheikh, just focusing on that aspect then, because these acts of what happens after somebody passes away, um, what's the etiquette for visiting the family of a bereaved in terms of when's the right time to go and what should you do? Um, I know when I've often go that, the bit that I've never really sussed out whether you should be doing it. So you, you, if you go and visiting somebody, you're sitting there, and then whenever somebody walks in the room, 
they'll say, you know, it's Fatiha, right, and then everyone reads it and then they keep talking and then somebody else comes in and do Fatiha and make dua and then yeah, before so, they leave yeah. they do that all again. So, so, is that's that, an, so that's another thing that's not established um, strictly from the Sunnah of the Prophet. But again, it's um it's a it's an action which it's, it goes back down to Isal Thawab that by reading Quran, Fatiha or Ikhlas, whatever it is, or making dua for the person is beneficial for the person. So Beneficial practice Rather than people just coming and talking At least the basic, the minimum Is that they're going to do something Which is going to benefit the deceased So this is where it's been introduced by many scholars You want to do it, it's fine You don't want to do it, just make dua for the person You don't want to do anything, just do nothing then It's not a problem But um, there's no there's no issue with doing that um, There are certain etiquettes of uh, Ta'zir or, or of source The first is That uh, you're not supposed to stay For too long a period so you go, you show your respects, you leave. The problem with some people is they feel obliged to show that I was there for you and stay half the day, and then they oh, they get bored. They get bored, frankly. You know, there's only so much Quran you can read, only so much dhikr you can read, and they start talking and distract other people. I mean, I've heard politics being discussed at these places, and I'm just in, in shock at what's going on. You know, rather than doing that, just leave. Um, the other thing is... The period is three days of of um, mourning, official mourning. After that, it's makru to to offer uh, condolences. So, if you've been in those first three days, there's no need to go back. Okay, uh, some of them say even that you just go once. That's it. There's no need to go every single day. And then after that period, it's only for people. Maybe you were abroad at the time, you didn't get a chance. Those kind of you know people that weren't in the city at the time. But if you've been, that's fine. The family they should then uh, start to go back to normal. Um, so there's this idea of extending condolences. That's not really uh, something that we should be doing. Also, neighbours and relatives uh, should cook for the breed family. Uh, they should because obviously they're grieving, so they cook for them. Uh, there's a hadith that says prepare food for the the al Jafar, the family of Jafar, because sadness has come to them. So preparing preparing food, just emotional support, physical support, financial support, whatever it is, friends, family, neighbours do that for uh, the deceased, and also um, not speaking ill of the deceased. And Bukhari hadith in Bukhari says do not speak ill of the dead. So we only mention good things about those people. And that's the basics of of Ta'zi, inshallah. And what advice, as as we come towards the end of the show, would you give to the family members in terms of coping with this, you know, the grief and the bereavement? Because often, you know, you know, such a difficult time for the family, and you know, especially if you know, it's almost like a big rock in their lives is just gone, uh, and they they feel this real void. So in terms of coping with this grief and the bereavement, often life becomes meaningless, you know, life goes on hold for a long period. So in terms of, you know, coping with grief from the Islamic perspective, is there any advice you could share? I think the first thing is the Prophet used to uh, encourage us to visit the graveyard because he said by visiting the graveyard, it reminds you of death. The problem is the reason why death hits us so suddenly is because we're not, we're not, it's not on the radar, we're not thinking about it. And we've got to keep in mind it can happen at any time. We have to be prepared. This is not the being and end of this world. is not the being and end of. There's a life to come. And so the first thing to understand is death is not the end. And the hope, inshallah, is if we both go to good places, the, that the bereaved and the deceased will meet again. But inshallah, it will be in a better state. 
and it will be in a better place. So, inshallah, it's not a, um, a permanent um, break from the person. So, say, say you're say you're 30 years younger than your parents, and you average live 30 years. Only 30 years you have to wait, and you'll see them again, inshallah. Um, secondly, is that you can continue to have a, a link with them by visiting them at the grave, reading for them, um, doing charity for them, uh, doing du'a for them, all of these things, making du'a that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a reward to them. So you can keep that connection with them, inshallah. Uh, Sheikh, we've sort of run out of time. I know this is a whole day course, so you can spend several days. Again, another topic like this is that, you know, um, there's so much to discuss, but hopefully we've given the listeners a bit of an overview of some of these uh, aspects and, and for them to perhaps start reading up, up more about or learning more about and I guess very uh, importantly as you said it's one of those topics that you need to prepare before the event happens uh, you know we're very fortunate people in our community that you, know, you can go to and get help from and they help you through the whole logistical side of things um, with Brother Rizzi which everyone knows I think Masha does so much good work in terms of uh, the practical side of things and I guess as the imams and the scholars that can also guide people through this really difficult time. But Jazakallah uh, Khair Sheikh for your time. So I think people should really look out for the next um, course that you do on this aspect. But I think from all of us, Jazakallah Khair for all the listeners tuning in today. We hope you've uh, got some benefit. A lot of our discussions and programmes, as with many of the other programmes on Radio Ramadan, are available as podcasts very shortly after the shows. Um, if you head across to... SoundCloud and I think if you search for ARC Radio Glasgow you can find a lot of the podcasts available there uh, but Jazakallah Khair Umran Jazakallah Khair thank you for, for coming in Sheikh just while we've got I know we're running slightly over time but a few couple of words this is the 23rd night um, you know last few nights and also a lot of the mosques will be finishing off uh, doing the Khatam as well so a few just a small reminder if you may uh, if you could inshallah. yeah so uh, as we know in the last 10 days, the Prophet used to push himself in these last 10 days that he didn't push himself the rest of the year. Uh, so this is the time to put your foot down and accelerate or really push yourself. I know it's difficult with the long fast and lack of sleep and everything, but try your best. Um, specifically, the nights are very important. Our nights are really short, so it's not much effort really. And specifically, the odd nights. So this is the 23rd night and the ulama are of the opinion that Al-Aid Al-Qadr is most likely to be in one of the odd nights and it changes throughout, the, throughout every year. So it could be 21st, 23rd, 25th, 27th, 29th. Every night push yourself, but specifically these nights, remember to push yourself a bit extra. Um, the dua that the Prophet taught Sayyidina Aisha on this night was Allahumma innaka afuun tuhibbul afwa fa'afu anna or fa'afu anni if it's just for yourself, which means, oh Allah, you're the one who uh, if, um, wipes away sins. You love to wipe away sins, so therefore wipe away my sins. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put barakah on everyone's ibadah and everyone's nights, inshallah. Ameen. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh. This has been Cradle to the Grave with Sheikh Ahmad Jamil and Dr. Amanda Rani. And we'll see you next week.